1: Today we're going to talk about the media's coverage of the threat of default, I interview the communications director for Barack Obama and co-host of Pod Save America, Dan Pfeiffer, about Ron DeSantis' campaign launch, who he'd rather have Biden run against between DeSantis and Trump, and why Democrats' message on the debt ceiling doesn't seem to be breaking through. And I'm joined by candidate for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, Lucas Kuntz, about Josh Hawley's obsession with manhood, some surprising endorsements that he's gotten in that red state, and how Missourians' lives would change if he replaced Hawley. I'm Brian Taylor Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. Okay, so we're days away from default. According to the Treasury secretary, the U.S. will default will run out of money on June 5th if the debt ceiling isn't raised by then. So let me say at the top that I fully believe that the debt ceiling will be raised and that will avoid default like for for as dangerously incompetent as some people are in Washington, I don't think there's a chance that even they would allow the government to default and crater our stock markets and global markets and plunge the U.S. into a recession. Like, call me naive. I don't think that we're at that much of a low point yet, not ruling it out. But I think that there's a bare minimum acknowledgement, even from the clowns in the GOP, that that would be the single dumbest move you could possibly pull. And (laughs) the electoral punishment would be swift and severe. So I think the debt ceiling will be lifted if it's not already lifted by the time you listen to this. But that's not exactly what I want to talk about here. Um, That's only part of my beef with how this all played out. My beef is with the way that the media covered this. The fact is that the only reason Republicans felt confident enough to take our own economy hostage is because they felt OK about the way that it was being portrayed in the media and the way that it was being portrayed was as if this was some negotiation between the two sides, just business as usual, run of the mill politics, which to be clear, this wasn't this was Republicans threatening to blow up the plane that we are all on. I mean, hell, here's Matt Gates admitting that the hostage here was the threat of default on our own economy.
0: So, would you say then the conservatives like yourself are becoming more pessimistic about the state of negotiations? If you know, there's a
1: bipartisan deal in sight, maybe. Or how would you like characterize the mood among your conservative
2: colleagues right now? I think my box? conservative colleagues, for the most part, support limit, save, grow, and they don't feel like we should negotiate with our hostage.
1: And the fact that he could come out and say this with a straight face is because he knew full well, and his party knew full well, that none of the coverage from the media was acknowledging the fact that this was not okay. Like any normal coverage would be pretty clear eyed about the fact that Republicans were looking to use the threat of default, meaning economic collapse, as a basis to exact concessions for themselves. They basically want to strip away most of the Inflation Reduction Act, they want to impose work requirements on social programs, exactly the type of agenda that would never pass with popular support. And so they're trying to shoehorn it in this way. And this is something they felt comfortable doing because they knew that Democrats wouldn't let default happen because Democrats are responsible enough not not to want to usher in financial ruin because Democrats are fiscally responsible. And so because the left will operate in good faith to a fault and because the right has no shame and no scruples, we're now put in a situation where the GOP knows that it can engage in hostage taking, which is what they did. But worse, they knew that the media would do what it always does and come at this from a both sides perspective and pretend that the left and right are both good faith actors. And this is just normal politics, just a normal left right feud. And that is exactly what they did. And yet at no point in all of this was our own media able to acknowledge or even recognize the fact that one side being willing to crash our own economy that we all participate in is not a negotiation. It's a it's a hold up. Right. At one point, Kevin McCarthy was asked, Uh, what he was willing to give up in these in these, quote unquote, negotiations. He said he would lift the debt ceiling. That's what he was willing to give up, not crashing the global economy. Imagine thinking that that's a negotiation. If you don't give me a billion dollars, I'll blow up this bridge. Is that a negotiation? I mean, my God, the lengths that most of the media will go to to avoid being labeled the liberal media is just mind numbing. Look, it, it doesn't make you some rabid leftist to be able to have a bias in favor of not willfully crashing our own economy just like it doesn't make you a rabid leftist to be pro-democracy in a democracy. And the fact that those things seem like partisan issues now isn't a condemnation of, of the left or, or politics today. It's a condemnation of Republicans. I'm sorry, but you don't need to both sides this issue if only one side is suddenly willing to crash our economy for political gain. If suddenly one side is anti-democracy in a democracy, like the fact that the media is now both sides in the very concept of democracy to be able to stay in the GOP's good graces is a testament to just how far right off the cliff these people have gone and a testament to how unwilling the media is to meet this moment. So look, again, I do think that a deal will be struck to avoid default, if not entirely because one party, the Democrats, won't allow default to happen. But it is a sad state of affairs when the Republicans, the, the party of fiscal responsibility, has decided that our own economy, our own dollar is the world's reserve currency. Uh, the prospect of a recession was an acceptable negotiating wedge for them. And when the media effectively allowed them to do it, because as far as they're concerned, it's more about the horse race than it is about the substance. So not to make this a pitch for for independent media, but the lesson that we are learning over and over is that some legacy media, not all, but some seem solely interested in balance. And the effects of that are obviously pretty damn dangerous. Next up is my interview with Dan Pfeiffer. Now we have got the communications director for Obama's White House and the host of Pod Save America, Dan Pfeiffer. Dan, so good to have you back.
2: Hey man, good to see you.
1: So Dan, uh, let's start off with uh, the stupid stuff first and then we'll get into the more serious stuff. Uh, There was a moment that went pretty viral where Marjorie Taylor Greene called for decorum in the house. Here's that clip.
0: The members are reminded to abide by decorum of the house.
1: Can I have your reaction to that? Uh, laughter, pure,
2: pure laughter, I mean, talk wow. about a massive case of lack of self-awareness to walk right into that, which is, I guess is what we kind of expect from each other green these days. Yeah.
1: yeah. Especially like just perfectly, uh, perfectly placed coming from the woman who, uh, who is screaming liar at Joe Biden, not two months ago at, uh, at the state yeah. of the union. So exactly. okay.
2: chasing down, uh, Parkland victims to, uh, to yell at them. Yeah. yeah. I mean. The, the, decorum and etiquette embodied, Marjorie Taylor.
1: Yeah, that's right. OK, so uh, a big piece of news this week. Ron DeSantis made his 2024 announcement on Twitter. There was a lot of talk about how the announcement itself was bungled. And I took some momentary pleasure in watching both Elon and DeSantis sweat that out. But at the same time, that story in and of itself probably drew a lot of attention to the launch, even if only for how screwed up it was, would you consider it uh, a success or a failure?
2: It is an absolute abject failure. It's probably one of the most uh, damaging unforced errors in modern political history. The launch is supposed to be the easiest part of your campaign. Yeah, You have a speech, the press cover you, they will cover, they will write about your message. Even if you're a long shot, they'll take you seriously. It is. It's one of the easiest free passes in politics, and DeSantis screwed it up every which way possible. And it's not just the technical glitches and like that stuff just kind of happens. Sometimes there's bad luck involved. The microphone goes out, as it did for Tim Scott the other day. Yeah. But even if this idea had been executed perfectly, it would have been an absolute disaster. Like to what end? Why? Why would you ever possibly want to do an audio-only announcement being interviewed by two Silicon Valley, uh, sorry, by two uh, Silicon Valley billionaires to talk about their esoteric issues? It made no sense. It, it is illogical. He's on the an audio feature on a text platform that no one really pays attention to. It's just bizarre, totally bizarre. Yeah. I mean, just rank incompetence across the board.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, uh one idea in terms of what he's trying to leverage is the popularity or the money or the power of Elon Musk. And I, I think Ron DeSantis like war room, however official that may be released a video later that day where it was one clip of DeSantis and one clip of Elon. And it was like a two minute video just yeah. trading clips of Elon and like you would think that they were one and the same or that they weren't capable of discerning who those two people were from each other. But uh, but clearly they're trying to leverage some power, money, whatever it is in the whole Elon camp. Um, but during that launch, Ron DeSantis was asked a few serious policy questions and in virtually every case he pivoted back to culture war when he was answering them. So it's basically just just noun, verb, woke. That was his yeah. his whole his yeah. whole thing. Very 2008 Rudy Giuliani 9-11 vibes that we got there. Um, but with that said, he is running in the GOP where really no one gives a shit about policy. It's all culture war and identity politics. So do you think his strategy is viable to win the party's nomination?
2: viable-ish, I'd say. The culture war matters in the Republican primaries. It matters a lot. It's how Trump won in 2016. It's why he's continued to dominate the primary. The real question is, how does he distinguish himself from Donald Trump on the culture war stuff? Can he deliver that more convincingly, more with more passion, more authenticity, more charisma than Trump? Because ultimate, his argument is not thus far has been, I'm a more effective culture warrior than Trump. He talks about these things, I get it done. But But there's limits to that. And what I think he's really, really missing, and I think a lot of political observers are missing about Trump's success in the Republican primary, is he is the first rep- Republican politician to marry culture war, right-wing, racist, homophobic, bigoted culture war stuff with economic populism that it takes the place, in some cases, certainly that's some of the anti-immigration stuff, which crosses, sort of bridges those two things, but opposing cuts to Social Security and Medicare, railing about big business and corporations, even if Trump's policy agenda does not match that in any way, shape or form, his rhetoric does. And so that that has given him this strength, and DeSantis is trying to run on Trump's culture war agenda and Paul Ryan's economic agenda, and I don't see that
1: working unless he changes. Well, to that point, in what way do you think that Trump could lose to DeSantis here? Like, what would what would DeSantis need to do to unseat Trump as the presumptive Republican nominee? And is he doing it?
2: He's certainly not doing it yet. His campaign has been all downhill since the moment he won his big re-election victory in Florida in 2022 and sort of was lifted up as the Trump alternative among the MAGA candidates. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're trying to say, how is it possible that DeSantis wins? He does better than he is doing now. He kind of reaches stability. He reminds some of these donors and activists and political leaders of the guy they thought he was a few months ago. And largely Trump collapses under his own weight, right? And that, inclu- that could be, you know, at any moment, Trump could dine with Kanye again, have another neo-Nazi over for brunch, is could get indicted again this summer on another... Um, Criminal case. There are other ones. We know the Jack Smith investigation into the Mar-a-Lago documents is heating up. Like, what does Trump look like six months from now when he's facing three? He's indicted on three crimes in three jurisdictions. The first trial is scheduled to start six days after the Florida primary. Yeah. When you're going through on Super Tuesday, March fifth, there are. Pre-trial motions, you know, all this discussion of these things. Like, does the, all of that add up? Plus, the combined weight of, you know, maybe a couple hundred million dollars in ads against Trump from DeSantis' side and all the other Republicans. Does that bring him down? Not because Republicans are going to abandon him out of some moral outrage or policy concern or realize he's a liar. Just they think he can't win because of all the baggage. Like, does the If DeSantis' argument is he's Trump without the baggage, does Trump get a a lot more baggage between now and then?
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, well, if you were in the Biden White House, uh, who would you rather run against in 2024?
2: I honestly think you could argue that one round or flat. And I think it's very dangerous to argue it either way. The polling shows it's about exactly the same right now. And we should stipulate that any single Republican, Trump, DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Glenn Youngkin, anyone you pick, a cardboard cutout with an scarlet r on their forehead yeah is going to get to within a couple points of any democrat that is just that is the nature of politics in this this era with this electoral college we should presume the election is going to be decided by less than 100 people spread across six states as it has been the last two times around and so maybe trump is you know Biden has beaten Trump before you're gonna argue against Trump. You'd say Biden's beaten Trump before. Is there a single person who has voted for Biden who's gonna vote for Trump this time? Is there a single person who set out the last election who's gonna get involved for Donald Trump this time? Like that would be the argument. And we know we it's a known thing. Joe Biden has beaten him, and Trump has also lost every single election in which he's been a factor since he won in 2016.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But
2: now DeSantis, yeah. is DeSantis. A more appealing version of Trump, or is he just Mitt Romney? Right? Is he gonna generate that excess turnout among working class voters in rural areas that Trump did that sort of represents the difference between Obama's performance in 2012 and Trump's performance in 2016? I don't know. Um, he doesn't have DeSantis thus far has not demonstrated anything resembling the sort of charisma skill, um, nimbleness character that it takes to win a presidential campaign. We know Trump has won one before, and DeSantis hasn't. Uh, so it's hard, it's hard to say. I don't think I'd be rooting one way or the other. And I think people who think they know the answer to that question are kind of forgetting how history has played out over the last eight years here.
1: Yeah. And I think to, to the DeSantis point also, if it by some miracle did end up being DeSantis over Trump, then there's also the added factor of what happens to all of Trump's diehard fans. Do they, right. do they just... Transfer right over to Ron DeSantis, or more likely, do we see some scorched earth thing where then Trump brings his people out of the political process to to kind of stick it to Ron DeSantis? So all of those are kind of uh, you I mean know, remain, th- remain to be seen. If
2: five thousand Trump voters in the state of Georgia decided not to turn out because they yeah. were mad at Ron DeSantis, that's ball game right there. Like that's yeah. how, that's how much this is going to be decided on the margins. The other side, if Focus groups, you know, there was the Washington Post did this focus group of swing voters recently, all of them concerned about Joe Biden's age. Most of them have still picked Biden over Trump anyway. Does that, does the age issue become more of a problem against a 40-something-year-old Ron DeSantis than a 76-year-old Donald Trump? Maybe, right? So you just, it just don't know what the world looks like is going to matter more. I think the two things that matter more than who the Republican nominee is. What does the world look like? What's the economy look like? Uh, And is there a third party candidate who is getting two to 5% of the vote in these swing states, which is gonna make it much easier for a Republican to win depending on who that candidate is.
1: Yeah. What's become obvious here is that the way that Trump and DeSantis perceive victory respectively is to outflank each other on the right. Um, You know, they're moving toward all these abortion. Trump just recently took full credit for uh, for, uh, the Dobbs decision. Meanwhile, DeSantis passed his own version of a six week abortion ban. All the while, common sense would suggest that they're making themselves completely unelectable in the general election. Do you subscribe to that theory or do you think that ultimately they'll run as far as they can to the right? And then for whatever reason, maybe people aren't paying attention. Maybe it just feels like a reset that that they don't get punished for that in the general.
2: I mean, the the majority, the voters who are going to decide the 2024 general election are not paying a lick of attention to the Republican primary. And so theoretically, taking this with the Biden campaign, Democrats, other outside groups can hang these positions around the necks of DeSantis and Trump. But their strategic logic is you can't win the general if you don't win the primary. So solve that problem first and then get to the next one. But you know, if you look at 2022, what is very clear is there is a price to pay for winning Republican primary. The positions you must take to win that Republican primary will haunt you in the general. Does that mean they're unelectable? No. Does that mean they're less electable? Probably.
1: All right. So I want to switch gears here to uh, default and the whole issue of the debt ceiling. I don't want to go too deep into this because I'm certain that, you know, the moment that we finish recording this, something is going to happen that'll immediately render our conversation Mm. obsolete. But I will ask this Republicans are using the U.S. economy as the hostage here in these negotiations. Why doesn't it seem to be getting through to Americans that Republicans are basically threatening to blow up the plane that we're all flying on right now? Is it because debt ceiling stuff just writ large is boring? Is it a failure um, on our part to message effectively?
2: I think it's three things. One, I think the, the markets, the business community, the, just sort of everyone is, has been operating with what I think is a somewhat naive assumption that this is going to get fixed. We've gone down this path twice, both times we've avoided default. What generally would drive coverage on this is the market was dropping 800 points a day or 1,000 points a day over this. Yeah. That has not been happening. So everyone just sort of thinks it's going to get fixed. Two, the press coverage of this has been offensively bad. It has treated this as a standard negotiation. The press has proved, the not all of the press, but much of the traditional legacy media has proven, once again, they are culturally incapable of accurately covering a dangerously radical Republican faction, because to, act- to point out what the Republicans are doing as extortion would be seen as taking a side. They prefer to be seen as balanced than accurate. And that, that has affected all of this. The third reason is, and this is a strategic decision from the president, is the president is, has, once he started negotiations with the Republicans, he largely stopped making this case publicly. I, my, I believe he... He has made the calculation that it is better to get a deal, to, get the, to avoid default on the best terms possible than to try to, and then try to win the messaging ter- war in the short term because winning the messaging war in the short term is going to make it harder to get a deal because any deal that he cuts is going to require some, going to require a majority of Republicans to be on board because otherwise, if it doesn't, McCarthy will, cannot bring it to the floor or he will lose his speakership. So he is made a decision, I think this is probably, the this is maybe a, a little bit of chess in a world of checkers, is to say, I'm going to take a bunch of shit right now, probably is going to get to kind of define the short-term press coverage over it. I'm not going to score a bunch of political points, but I'm going to get a better deal through being amiable publicly than being aggressive publicly. And we can, ju- I don't know if we can judge the accurate, the sort of the wisdom of that strategy until we see how this actually plays itself out. but. Up until the moment those negotiations around a budget deal started, uh, the president was very aggressive in making the case about the Republican position here, and then he he stepped back in favor of this approach, and that that may be the right choice. I just we just don't know yet.
1: Yeah, although the flip side of that is that created a vacuum that it usually creates when we don't have any um, anyone on the offensive. And so everything is filled with, you know, even Kevin McCarthy trying to completely flip the narrative to make it sound like the the uh, the radical socialists are now trying to to get in charge, which is obviously like his play on the whole, um, you know, far right extremists who are dictating the terms of all of this conversation.
2: Yeah, it's like the you know, the House Democrats have had a bunch of press conferences. Senators are out there. People like you and the folk, and my folks at Positive America, we have tried to make the case, but nothing can fill the void left by the president when the president's yeah. in charge. Like that is just the reality of it. I, Barack Obama was in the exact same position in 2011 when he was in the, on the stuck in the same menu of shitty choices that Joe Biden currently has, and we'll we'll see how it plays itself out. Um, it, it is. I am very sympathetic to the people in the White House that there is no good option here, and they're gonna and they're just. For us to choose among a bunch of things is going to be pretty painful, but hopefully we'll avoid what would be an absolute catastrophe substantively and politically, which would be default.
1: Um, I I believe you've spoken about this on Pod Save America, but, you know, there are a lot of people asking why not just invoke the 14th Amendment. Can you speak on that? Yeah,
2: (laughs) I am not. This is a shock, but I am not a lawyer. I'm not a legal expert. All I know is when I read about the 14th Amendment, but it seems at best case the arguments around the 14th Amendment are a legal jump ball. But you have ex- not put aside like the partisan experts uh some of them believe it's right some of it believe believe it does not that the that the debt ceiling is not in conflict with the 14th amendment but practically speaking here is the problem for the biden administration if they do this one is it lets the republicans off the hook it's now the president's choice to 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 avoid try to avoid default this way you've now taken the entire fate of the global economy and you've put it in a court system filled with Trump judges, who, as we just saw in the abortion medication case, uh, will make insane decisions. Yeah. Ultimately, that will wind its way up to the Supreme Court, which is rigged, a corrupt Supreme Court, rigged by Mitch McConnell and the Federal Society. But even from a very practical matter, the way you pay your debts is you sell bonds. Right. That's how we get more money institutional investors and foreign like this like investment funds, et cetera, and uh pension funds and foreign countries. How could you sell debt of legally questionable value? Like who would buy that debt? This is a pure practical matter. Yeah. And it is not as simple as just the president going out and saying, uh, I evoke the 14th Amendment as if he is like a wizard and hogwarts. Like it's not a magic spell. Yeah. What happens is we cross the X date, the United States sells more bonds. And when the Republicans sue, you respond in court that the reason you did it is because the four, you believe the debt limit statutes in conflict with the 14th Amendment, and then you put the whole thing in the hands of the court. And so there's would just be a massive amount of economic turbulence. It, this is one of those things where I think the people who've been asserting that the president do this with such confidence are a little bit playing... Sort of the domestic political version of the game, risk, and not really reckoning with the real consequences. If you're President Biden, it's not put aside the politics of like who would win in a messaging war over this. It's just, do you want millions of Americans to lose their jobs and the stock market cut in half on your watch? Like that would take decades to unwind. You're going to do that on a on a at, on a legal theory that your own lawyers can agree on. Yeah. So I just think it's not particularly practical, even if it seems quite appealing.
1: Right. And the way that it has to be done is in such a way that it would already be too late to fix it, yes. if and when they render their, their, you know, their verdict, make their ruling. So again, you know, to your exact point, the whole thing would just be put in the hands of a 6-3 conservative court that probably would love nothing more than to see Biden, uh, Biden's entire presidency fall apart. So uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I agree with you there. Dan, Tom Carper has announced his retirement <laughs> in the state of Delaware. As everyone knows, you are one of the most well-respected sons of Delaware. Do you have any announcements that you would like to make uh, right here on this show?
2: Yes, I do. In fact, uh, first and foremost, uh, I live in California. Uh, I'm a resident of said state. But more importantly, is it Delaware. Well, that has- hasn't that hasn't
1: stopped uh, that hasn't stopped uh, quite a few people before. But that's go on. true.
2: That is true. Just as a point of fact, and a point of reference, yeah. I live in Northern California. But second is that uh, Delaware has, because it's a small state, has one congressperson. That congressperson is Lisa Blunt Rochester, who everyone expects to run for Senate in Tom Carper's place. I certainly hope she does. If she is elected, she is, uh, will become the only black woman in the United States Senate. That would be an absolute huge thing for Delaware. It'd be great for the Senate. She's awesome. And so I fully endorse her, uh, her candidacy that I, that I hope will be coming very soon.
1: All right. What I'm what I'm taking out of that is that there's a chance that you would run for Congress, <laughs> fill that void we'll, in Congress. Well,
2: we'll conference my wife in, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about this <laughs> later.
1: Dan, tell me about Crooked's new subscription community.
2: Yes, so we uh, created a community called uh, Friends of the Pod. It's a way to it's a, a really amazing program, a way to engage deeper with Crooked content, to engage deeper with other. Um, crooked uh listeners and fans there's a discord server john john and tommy myself other crooked personalities get on there there's a show called terminally online that is uh quite fun that is available to uh for for subscribers you can go to crooked website um and check it out i highly uh, encourage it i did that show the other day and terminally online we each pick one thing that we, one piece of content that we engaged with that made us question whether we're too online. Uh, mine ended in the most recent episode with me going quite deep down a lot of rabbit holes around the Vanderpump Rules scandal situation. Uh, yeah. It's quite funny. It's quite good. Lots more things coming. It's a great way to contribute money to Vote Save America and a whole bunch of other things. So I encourage everyone to uh, check it out.
1: Yes, and uh, I was also on Terminally Online I believe like a few weeks back. Super yes, fun. Show. Yeah. Definitely. Yes, yeah. It's a yeah. great show. Definitely yeah. recommend it. Um and I'll put the link in the post description uh, as well for anybody looking to to join. And and finally Dan, uh, as you know, I joined Tommy on our uh, for our bi-weekly show on YouTube yeah. called Liberal Tears which it's a ranking show so we'll rank uh, top 10. Tommy does seem to really be leaning into it. Um, do you have any message for him as he seeks to dethrone you as Crooked Media's YouTube star?
2: Well, I would say, welcome to the party, Tommy. You've we've you started this company like six years ago, and I'm glad you're finally engaging with uh, video, content? video media, the video content. Up <laughs> yeah. until now, you've basically been uh, Ron DeSantis asking your in your uh, exclusivity for audio. I think the show's great. I'm glad he's riding your coattails. Uh, <laughs> like to see Tommy. Tommy did a show on his own before you, and I would just say it did not do as well. So mm-hmm. I think we know where uh, who, who brings the juice to the table here.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll add nothing to that. I'll, just let your, <laughs> I'll let your words speak for themselves. You, you uh, will neither,
2: you, confirm, you will not agree nor disagree. Probably yeah,
1: right. confirm that's, nor that's deny. That's uh, although uh, I'm sure, I'm sure Tommy will have uh, have words to throw back. So I'm sure he that will, said, yes. yeah, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it, and uh, and uh, love to have you back soon. Awesome, man. Good to see you. Now we've got a candidate for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, Lucas Koontz. Lucas, always great to have you on.
3: Yeah, man. It's great to be here.
1: So, uh, Lucas, you are running for the U.S. Senate in Missouri against Josh Hawley. Uh, Hawley has just released his new book entitled Manhood. How enlightening was it to finally learn about manhood from reading this book?
3: Oh, dude. I mean, for $29.99, you can get all the secrets straight from the man himself, right? And uh, you know, if anyone doesn't want to actually take the time to read the book because it is uh, quite a chore, I can tell you that much. Uh, the secret is, uh, unsurprisingly, to be more like him. So uh, you know, the guy who skittered out the back of the Capitol is going to teach us all to be manly, manly men. I guess. That's right. And that's right. Uh, oh, by the way, and if you're a woman, you need to stay out of the workplace. He says because uh, uh, that's just really bringing men down these days.
1: Yeah. Just. Just. Yeah. Driving us straight into the future. Straight into the future with Josh Hawley. That's right. Lucas, you, you wrote you co-wrote op Ed uh, for the Daily Beast. I wanna read an excerpt from what you wrote. Real family values are about providing a healthy alternative to the toxic masculinity that Hawley is offering. The disconnect between men and the economy or society isn't happening because men are failing to achieve some weird idea of what it means to be a man. The core of this crisis is the fact that men without a college degree have seen their relative earnings fall by 30% since 1980. Why? Because Josh Hawley and others like him have blocked advancements for working class Americans at every turn. Can you speak a little bit about what you meant by that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And so. I've seen it in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And so I grew up in a working-class neighborhood in, you know, a small, medium-sized town in Missouri called Jeff City. And, um, you know, we, none of us had any money. Uh, Like, my parents got married early, 19 and 22. It was a very similar story to everybody in that neighborhood. Um, Mine, in particular, were Catholic. And uh, so they had four kids, bang, 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 right? They were doing the right thing by the church. And uh, we were all living paycheck to paycheck. And uh, the thing was, though, we could all take care of each other. And so when my family, when my littlest sister was born and she had to have an open heart surgery, she actually had a couple, um, and our family went bankrupt from that. We made it because there was enough slack in that community. There was enough resources in that community that everyone at their churches passed the plate for us. People brought tuna casserole by the house, right? Like everybody was able to take care of each other. And, uh, And we've seen about 40 years of disinvestment from neighborhoods like that. You know, disinvestment in our public schools, taking away our opportunities, um, just really stripping our communities for parts like the one I grew up in, to the point that we don't have the ability to take care of each other anymore. And people like Josh Holly are the exact problem. They're the people who disinvested from communities like that all across our state and all across our country. So now you go to that neighborhood, a place where. You know, I used we all all as kids used to run in and out of each other's houses. Everybody could take care of each other, and it just looks desolate. The first house they ever lived in is an empty lot. The one I joined the Marine Corps out of got no windows in it anymore. The corner store was boarded up because it's been robbed so many times that uh, it couldn't get insurance. And so, you know, and what's going in there now? A smoke shop, of course, because uh, that's what goes into neighborhoods like that. And so, what I what I see the need is like you know he talks about oh, there's a crisis of masculinity. No, no, there's a crisis of leadership. And the leadership we have here is leaders who make decisions based on the corporations that are funding their campaigns, rather the communities that, rather than for the communities that, um, you know, make our state and our country strong. And so uh, what we're saying, what Jake Auchincloss and I, Representative Auchincloss and I are saying is, we need to invest in communities, we need to invest in unions, we need to invest in apprenticeship programs, we need to invest in paths for people to have opportunity so that they can take care of themselves and uh, and everything will, will work out a lot better.
1: Now, Missouri is a red state, you'll need Republican voters to win this election. What's your pitch to Missouri voters who may identify through and through as Republicans? How do you win them over? And have you had any success in winning over, you know, those who do identify as Republicans thus far on the campaign trail?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, first of all, like Josh Hawley's very unlike. I mean, the guy who writes a book on manhood is like kind of creepy just to begin with, right? Dude ran out of the back of the Capitol. So even if you liked what he did at the first half of January 6th, they're kind of like, oh, well, actually, he's just a coward in the end anyway, right? And so he provides us a unique opportunity uh, to contrast sort of my bio where, you know, I did 13 years in the Marine Corps, deployed to Af- Iraq and Afghanistan, really been trying to serve the country with a guy who really only cares about himself and uh, and maybe the zillionaires who originally funded his campaign. But, um, you know, the fun thing here is that a lot of them have abandoned him, right? Like, So our former senator, Jack Danforth, was a Republican. He made Josh Hawley who he is. He said Josh Hawley's the worst mistake he ever made. The zillionaire out of Joplin, Missouri, who funded Hawley, said he's not going to support him anymore. The guy's not really been able to raise a lot of money. And um, and people here just don't like him. He's you know, his disapproval is higher than his approval, which, you know, for you said is a red state. But like uh, for a Republican in Missouri who hasn't been having negative ads thrown against them, like that's an achievement. And he achieved that just based on you know being himself. Just just and, just uh, being so Josh Hawley. Yeah. Just being Josh Hawley has gotten Missouri made him one of the most unpopular people. And the thing is that Missourians are willing to split their ticket, right? In 2016, the last time we had a Senate election, at the same time as a presidential election, uh, Donald Trump won this state by the most anyone had ever won by. It was like 17 points. And um Roy Blunt or well, Jason Kander was running against Roy Blunt. Jason Kander was a veteran like me, a Democrat. And he came within 2.7 percent of winning. So Missourians are willing to switch their vote. We don't have to overcome as big of a gap as we used to, because the craziness has just been, you know, kind of bring that party down as a whole. And uh, and uh, we just we got a lot of people who want what I want and uh, and uh, enjoy that. And so examples you ask for an example, I mean, the State Firefighters Union uh, just endorsed me over this last week. And, you know, they've endorsed the Republican for governor. They endorsed uh our current Republican Senator, Eric Schmidt, they endorsed our previous Republican Senator, Roy Blunt. And uh, and they're they're just, you know, they see Josh Hawley, they see, they see his fakeness, they see his unwillingness to do anything for the state of the people here. And they said, you know what, well, we're going to endorse you instead. And so we see that not just with organizations, but with people all across the state who, uh, you know, they're either tired with what's going on in D.C. or they're just tired of Josh Hawley. Like, you know, we just don't want a kind of a creep and a faker representing us.
1: Have you had any success with other unions, given the fact that Republicans have such an overtly anti-union stance nationally now? Have, have other unions come forward and said, even though you know we may have supported Republicans in the past, that we're now moving toward, toward you or toward Democrats?
3: Missouri's got a real big uh, union presence and a strong union background. And so uh, most people don't know this, but the anti-union right to work sort of legislation that a lot of states have passed Missouri overturned that on a ballot initiative 68% to 32%. So like massive margin. And uh, and so far, uh, most of the unions have consolidated behind me. Um, any endorsements that have been in, made in this race by unions so far uh, have been for my campaign. And so we do have a bunch of locals, uh, the Kansas City Building Trades and several others. And that's really the boots on the ground warriors that we can sort of start putting together now. We're going to knock these doors and, you know, can say things like, you know, I've supported Ex Republican, y Republican, before I'm you know, I'm not that different than you, but I'm telling you right now, Josh Holly's a scumbag and we got a Marine veteran here who actually cares about us and knows what our lives are like and it's gonna be a difference
1: maker for us. Yeah. And and I've said this before in other interviews as well, but it's important to get this moving fast because I think what a lot of Republicans do and what they've had success with doing is trying to define their Democratic opponents before those opponents have had the chance to define themselves. So that's the importance of, you know, if people are wondering, like, why already start to, to you know, bring candidates onto the show? Why start to interview them now more than a year prior to the election? It's because, you know, this is where it matters the most. This is where people are forming their opinions. And we have this rare opportunity here before Josh Hawley has had the chance to, to go on the air with attack ads. For you to come out and define yourself and and to kind of uh, dictate the terms of this conversation, and uh, for for Democrats, a party that has historically not had a lot of success in dictating the terms of the conversation and messaging well, this is especially important right now.
3: Yeah, we've been hitting hard. I don't know if I don't know if anybody saw. We just did an ad with John Hamm. So John Ham, Don Draper from Mad Men, is from Missouri, and uh, we did an ad together. Uh, just because Josh Holly's book is out, and and John uh, was like, you know, we we're gonna do something about this, and uh, you know, they played it on Joe Scarborough, played it and a few others, and and that's the way. You're absolutely right, Brian. We got to start defining this battleground. You know, I was in the military, right? You want to be the person in a military engagement who picks the battleground so that so that it's convenient or it's not convenient, but it's like it's best situated for you, and that's what we're doing right now, getting out early and and hammering away.
1: What do you think that voters in Missouri should know about Josh Hawley that they may not know right now? Is there something that he's been able to hide about himself or just just in general who he is that voters might not know about?
3: I mean, I think most people got a pretty good inkling of it. You would see that from his numbers. Uh, What we need to do is just reinforce that this guy's a fraud and a coward like that, just a fraud and a coward. And uh, when they when they go into the ballot box, we want people to say, Oh God, no, just can't do that guy. And Lucas Coons, he's all right. You know, he's a brain veteran. He cares about me. And, and Josh, honestly, like uh, he does it all on his own. Like, like I said, like, I mean, for the guy to be that unpopular um, without even having any negatives run against him, it's just, he comes across as so arrogant. He comes across like he doesn't care about you. Um, Anyone who has ever tried to reach out to his office from either side has had no success getting a hold of them or getting anything going on. And so, uh, I don't I think it's all out in the open already. Like there's no deep, dirty secrets that we got to roll with. The guy's just he's just, you know, he's no good. And um, and we just need to reinforce it. And even more importantly than that, we need to make sure that my contrast is out there. You know, the the way that I grew up is very different from the way he grew up. The way I understand Missouri, my service history in the Marine Corps uh, are all critical components Uh, because we can't just have people be like, oh, gross, Holly. Uh, and then hold their nose and vote for him anyway, they have to feel good about voting for me and know what I've done uh, over the years. And, uh, and and it'll work out just like it almost did for Jason Kander.
1: Well, to that point, how would Missourians' lives actually change if you were their senator? Like, I know that we've, we've spoken about, about your past and contrast that with that of Josh Hawley, but what about what you would be able to do for Missourians if you are elected to the Senate and able to serve?
3: Well, sure. One big thing for me was, uh, you know... Um, we passed the PACT Act recently in, in the House and Senate, and uh, and Joe Biden signed it. And so this was um, protecting veterans from exposed to toxic burn pit waste. Josh Hawley voted against that uh, when he had the opportunity to. And uh, obviously, I stand with veterans being one myself. I was exposed to toxic burn waste in, in Iraq. I still have some symptoms from it. And, uh, uh, you know, Missouri's got a huge percentage of veterans, and and taking care of veterans is important to me. And it's not something that matters to him. Um, You know, everybody has sort of seen the North, the Norfolk Southern train crash uh, where all the chemicals were spilled. Uh, Well, when Josh Hawley was attorney general, he got rid of Missouri's laws and our enforcement division that would protect Missouri citizens from something like that. And then he took a bunch of money from Norfolk Southern. Me, I'm not taking any money from corporate PACs. I'm not taking money from federal lobbyists. I'm not taking it from big fossil fuels, big uh, pharma execs. And so I'm going to be in a uniquely situated spot. Uh, where I'm not going to make the compromises and I'm not going to sell out the way that he's sold out over and over again. Like I can actually stand up and, and protect people. Uh, I don't think that members of Congress should own personal stocks. Uh, I'm going to move to make it so that they won't be able to make decisions based on their stock portfolios, which a lot of them have been doing for a long time. Uh, there are a lot of ways, you know, he hasn't brought any money back to the state. I want to use my leverage in a close Senate to bring money back to the state and invest. I think we can build out the next generation of energy technology. Uh, right here in the heartlands. Uh, You know, right now, what you see is um, a lot of war is caused by fossil fuels and energy right now. I mean, the war in Ukraine is funded by Russian gas purchases. And I think that if we built out the next generation of energy here in the Midwest and made that investment, uh, then we would export energy and we could reduce the likelihood of war in the future over over basically anything. And so uh, there are a lot of visionary things that I'd like to do and put out there. And, you know, Josh Hawley's not interested in having vision. He's interested in getting up there uh, squawking a little bit and then parroting around what great things he's done on Fox News and have someone who will actually bring money to the state, focus on the state and meet with constituents. Um, it's sad because that should basically that should be the baseline that you do no matter which party you are. You know, Roy Blunt used to do that. He'd meet with people and try to help them out no matter where they came from. And he does none of that. So I, I think the this, the difference is going to be absolutely extreme.
1: Lucas, Gen Z and millennial voters are now the biggest lo- voting block in the United States. What's your pitch to young people who may not have voted before?
3: Well, uh, I am a millennial, so I guess that helps a little bit on that front. But it's just, um, this is critical, right? If we want to protect our future, we're the only ones that can do it. We are the only ones that know our issues. We're the only ones who, frankly, care. And, uh, and none of the things that the boomers and before had are going to be there for us. If we don't protect it for for each other, and uh, and so you know, Josh Holly was asked the other day, "Hey, what do you think about the debt ceiling? Doesn't it make sense that you'd want veterans to get their benefits? Doesn't it make sense that you want people on Social Security to to get what they need? Wouldn't you want the school funding to go through?" And uh, and he said, and I quote, "I don't think it's in my best interest to push for that." It's like, well, what is your interest, man? And so uh, the thing the thing that we need to do um, with people my age and and maybe a little bit younger is, uh, is we got to get into their spaces. We got to talk to people where they're at. You know, I do a lot of YouTube shows. I go on Twitch, um, because really right now it's, it's the exposure and a lot of, a lot of people my age and younger, uh, we don't watch the same sort of media. I mean, well, you know, this, I'm just preaching the choir here, but like, there's a lot of other media out there, um, that we need to engage in so that we can meet people where they're at. And, um, the lucky thing is that that's what I consume too. Uh, so it's a pretty easy, uh, it's a pretty easy reach for me.
1: With that said, how can we help?
3: You follow us on Twitter, Lucas Kuntz Mo. Uh, it's K U N C E, Lucas Kuntz, Mo. Uh, go to my, our website, lucaskuntz.com. Donate, volunteer, uh, tell your friends. If you know anybody, anybody here in Missouri, tell them you heard us here. Uh, you know, go watch our John Hamm ad and, and like it on whatever the medium is. It really is right now. It's about getting buzz. Uh, Because when people see a sort of ground, like when reporters, mainstream media types, see a groundswell, uh, they get engaged. They want to report on it. They want to cover it. It's happening for us right now. And we just need to keep that going because I'm telling you, we are on the front lines in the fight for democracy here in Missouri. This is it. This is the front lines. Up until 2017, almost every single statewide seat in Missouri, governor, secretary of state down the line was held by Democrats. We lost our last statewide Democrat this year in 2023, my friend Nicole Galloway, and, uh, and people here are willing to vote for both sides if we give them the opportunity and we got a weak candidate on the other side. We have both of those things. It's absolutely critical with the way the Senate map is drawn this year that we have some offensive targets. Yeah. And I mean, Missouri is what you got, right? It's Missouri, Texas, and Florida. And so, you know, just tell your friends, spread the word, let's get out there because next summer we're going to need every single resource behind us. Uh, in order to knock out what may be the single most evil senator in the entire United States Senate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just last week, I interviewed Colin Allred, who's running Uh, as a candidate in Texas and that would be against Ted Cruz now got you running against uh, uh, Josh Hawley here so you know two senators who are instrumental in making sure that the events of January sixth happened uh, and making themselves front and center in terms of working to overturn the election results so you know these are great offensive targets make the Republicans spend their money in these states and uh, and if we have the chance to to win in seats like this uh, in Missouri and get rid of someone like Josh Hawley who's very clearly only out for himself that would be uh, that would be the best thing for democracy so With that said, Lucas, thank you for taking the time and I'll definitely have you back soon.
3: Awesome. Thanks, Brian. I'm
1: looking forward to it. Thanks again to Lucas. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen. Produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. And check out bryantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels.